Chapter 12 of A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Olivia. A Theory of Monads Outlines of the Philosophy of the Principle of Relativity by Herbert Wilden Carr. Chapter 12 The Concrete Universal. There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. William Shakespeare In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Gospel of St. John The concept of the a priori synthesis opened a new era in the historical evolution of philosophy. In proposing a new theory of knowledge, Kant was in effect propounding a new theory of relativity. The successors of Kant were not slow to realize that the new theory was much more than the Copernican revolution in philosophy, which Kant himself had suggested, much more, that is to say, than a mere change of standpoint which reconciled contradictory appearance and removed the obstacle to knowledge presented by the seemingly impossibility of knowledge. In the first place, it is clear that, if experience depend on the a priori synthesis as its condition, the essence of real existence is activity, for activity is implied in the idea of synthesis. In the second place, it is clear that if knowledge and reality be each the expression of that activity, they cannot be disparate. The notion of a material or stuff, essentially inert, independent of the passive subject of experience, to whom by reason of his mental or intellectual nature it is revealed by means of sense impressions, must give place to the notion of an original activity, the subjective and objective factors of which are internal, and therefore capable of being disclosed to reflective analysis. Philosophy, instead of exercising itself with the concepts of substance and cause, can now turn to the task of comprehending the nature and mode of activity. We need not try and follow the steps by which the new concept was reached. It was preeminently the work of Hegel. The new concept is the concrete universal. The new method which that concept called for and revealed is the dialectic. In other words, we are given a new concept of the object of metaphysics and of the process of logic, and this involves a new view of the nature of logic and of the subject matter of the science of logic. If Hegel had lived after, instead of before, the great scientific generalization of the 19th century, we should most certainly have attributed his philosophy to reflection on the discoveries of physical science. We are only beginning to see how completely harmonious the modern physical theories, attained by experimental method, are with the philosophical doctrines speculatively worked out long before experiments had been contrived or even thought of. It would be difficult to name a more perfect illustration of the concrete universal of Hegel than that offered to us in the modern electrical theory of matter. So striking is the analogy that, but for the fact of historical precedence, the logical doctrine of Hegel must have seemed to have been molded on the physical theory. And yet, strangely enough, throughout the great period of expansion of scientific discovery, Hegel's philosophy suffered from the reproach of being anti-scientific and obscurantist in its aim and method, and on that account fell into contempt. It will be both useful and instructive to institute a comparison. First, then, let us ask, what is a concept? It is a term which is not confined to philosophy. It has a definite meaning in common-sense discourse and in physical science. 
concepts are the clear and distinct ideas of the understanding which the cartesians opposed to the obscure and confused ideas of immediate sense experience equally concepts are the general ideas which the empiricists opposed to the percepts percepts being particular and sensible ordinarily we think of concepts not as opposed to percepts but as having the function of supplying their place when the conditions of experience make perception impossible in physical science concept stands for the actual reality itself as distinguished from the particular aspect of it at any moment or at any place percepts may be the appearance of reality concepts cannot be for concepts do not appear they always purport to be the exact mental equivalent of the reality which does appear take for example the concept of wireless telegraphy and consider how in ordinary discourse the concept is indistinguishable from the existence i cannot have the concept and at the same time think the reality different from the concept saying that i have the concept is the same as saying that i know the reality i may of course have some fanciful image of the way in which telegraphic communication is affected but this is not to have the concept of wireless telegraphy when i was a child i had the concept of god in heaven listening to the prayers addressed to him by me on earth that concept was indissolubly bound up with reality when the concept dissolved the reality dissolved a new concept brought with it a new reality concepts depend on sense imagery but they are not the sense imagery in distinction from the reality rather they are the reality in distinction from the sense imagery concepts then are in one of the ordinary meanings of the term the opposite of percepts they are a kind of mental reconstruction of sense imagery enabling the mind to complete what is incomplete in its immediate apprehension a mind able to apprehend all reality in a single intuition would have no need of concepts there is another ordinary and familiar meaning of concepts concepts are universals as distinct from particulars whatever is real seems to us in the first instance to be particular everything real is thought of as entering experience in its particularity it is this or that yet the reality of any particular thing consists in its relations to other things and apart from these relations there is no content of knowledge and if there is no content there is no knowledge without relations particulars would be momentary experience they would have thisness without whatness the whatness or content of the things which we experience as particulars is their universality universals are concepts it's easy to see therefore that every attempt of the mind to discover the reality implied in our experience supposes the use of concepts and these concepts are not merely substitutes for percepts where perception is impossible they are totally different in kind from percepts it is one and the same reality that we know as particular and as universal but particulars are not universals nor are universals particulars the men and women i know are particular men and women but their reality as men and women is their human nature human nature mankind humanity are universals concepts in our everyday experience then we distinguish two kinds of knowledge the knowledge which comes from sense experience and the knowledge which comes from thinking and understanding the first kind seems wholly composed of percepts and its objects are particular sensible things the second kind is composed of concepts and its objects are things in general or universals that is to say not particular things themselves but the nature of things 
it is because we have in ordinary life this other form of knowledge the concept that our experience is not the patchwork of sensations color blobs and splashes noises touches warmth colors pains into which experience seems on analysis to resolve itself when we go behind the knowledge which serves us in our ordinary experience and consider the systematic knowledge which we distinguish as science the contrast is even more striking all the objects in science are concepts and these concepts are not only directly related by us to our percepts to the particular things which we actually experience but also the mind gives these concepts a special perceptual form which is not actual but imaginative thus the sun which is an object of knowledge in the science of astronomy is perceived as a disk in the sky illuminating our world and warming our earth yet the sensations of light and heat are no part whatever of the scientific object as we conceive it and moreover the concepts of light and heat as scientific reality have nothing in common with the sensations we feel the kinetic theory of gas which expresses in scientific concept the reality we sense as heat is not made comprehensible by comparing for example our feelings of warmth in the sun and of coolness in the shade and yet that kinetic theory itself requires perceptual form in order that it may be expressed at all but it is a perceptual form which can only be imagined actual it can never be actual the fact that physical science depends on concepts was as we saw in the last chapter one of the guiding principles in the philosophy of kant one of the questions he set himself to answer was how is physical science possible kant thought of concepts as being few in number purely abstract formal not material factors in the constitution of knowledge their essential function being to unify experience the concepts are the principles of unity the laws of nature and guided by the formal or aristotelian logic we are able to deduce the complete list of them this is the famous transcendental deduction of all the pure forms of experience or categories of the understanding kant represented these concepts as preformed receptacles which the mind itself brought to experience the activity of the mind in experience consisted in imposing on the multitudinous impressions of sense pre-existing forms and to be able to do this was the condition of knowledge the mind has a formative power over a matter of which it is the passive recipient the concept therefore as kant presented it is universal not particular it is a necessary constituent of experience and its condition but it is abstract it is pure form indifferent to content the mind possesses it as the condition and as the form of its experience but mind is thing in itself and therefore unknowable and the content of experience the sense manifold also requires for its support the existence of things in themselves which are unknowable the very conditions of experience make knowledge of reality unattainable the dualism of form and matter give rise to the distinction between phenomena and noumena yet kant's theory marks a great advance in making the contradiction in the concept explicit he pointed the direction in which the solution to the problem lay the a priori synthesis implies an original activity in experience kant himself demonstrated this in the instance of the mathematical concepts more than this the priority of the synthesis implies that the duality of the concurrent terms has its origin in the act of knowing and that the act of knowing 
is not the effect or issue or result of an original duality it led to hegel's great discovery i will state this first of all as briefly and categorically as i can in doing so it will be easier if i separate the logical and the metaphysical theory although they are intimately connected the first is the dialectic the second is the concrete universal the metaphysical concept follows from the nature of logic the object of thought is not presupposed in thinking it is posited in and by the act of thinking the concept is activity of thought it is not abstract it is not a mere form superimposed by a contemplative mind on an alien matter it is the concrete universal necessary reality which thinking brings to existence the logic is the thinking the reality is the thought which thinking creates literally therefore and without any allegorical meaning we may say that there is nothing either good or bad but thinking makes it so logic now acquires new meaning it is not a syllogistic process but dialectic it is not a set of rules for the formal test of correct reasoning it is the science of the actual process of the mind in the development or unfolding of its active life once the concept of mind as essential activity is grasped and nothing short of this is implied by the a priori synthesis and the whole scope and meaning of philosophy is transformed it was no arbitrary speculation no superficial or fanciful conceit which produced the new logic of philosophy it was profound insight into the nature of reality a living activity is self-objectifying the grades or stages of its evolution are the moments of its life the moments of its life are not external divisions of an indifferent content they are distinct attainments with the character they derive from the continuous process of the activity the logic of philosophy is the science of self-objectifying mind the dialectic is the scheme of this conscious activity as it reveals itself to philosophical analyses thinking is in the first instance affirmation it predicates being every affirmation is at the same time negation it predicates being by setting over against itself non-being the affirmation can only gain content pari passu with its negation hence the activity of thought is an opposition within thought and a continual coming and going between what is affirmed and what is denied opposition is the very essence of activity instead of nullifying the activity it is its spur and incentive it is on the holding together of opposite factors factors which in pure abstraction are identical and simply nullify each other that the synthesis of reality depends it consists in an equilibrium continually disturbed and automatically restored in affirming we also deny but the negation which the affirmation posits does not remain simply nothing purely abstract non-being its very positing endows it with content and the negation becomes an opposite or contradictory reality which sets up an equal claim to content against the affirmation i cannot affirm i am without in the very thought distinguishing a not me from the me and this not me in the very affirmation of the me asserts itself as existing the well-known illustration of this is hegel's first category it may be truly described as the introduction to metaphysical intuition take our existence the existence we know in the experience without any mediated knowledge and reflect on what it is 
In its simplest expression, it is becoming. We never are. We are always becoming. Apart from the particular feeling, knowing, or desiring, which gives tone or content to our passing mood and forms our character, there is the continual flowing, the ceaseless change which makes each moment of experience not a repetition, but a new existence. Reflect then on this becoming. What is it? It is not a simple experience. On the contrary, it seems on analysis to dissolve only too easily into factors. It is a relation, but a relation of terms internal to it. It is a synthesis, but of what? Here is the amazing discovery. The factors of becoming are being and non-being, is and is not, existence and not. But do not these factors take us then beneath the synthesis? Do they not, in fact, give us a more fundamental reality than the becoming which we took to be the simplest expression of our existence? No, for when we abstract these factors from the relation of opposition in the synthesis, they are meaningless. What in itself is pure abstract being? It is nothing. Nothing which is identical with being and not merely a term for our ignorance. And what is non-being? It is not even negation until we provide it with the content which its opposition to being offers. Being and nothing are not, then, sub-subsisting realities. They are factors in the only thing that is real, becoming. The simplest reality we can bring before our mind, then, is a synthesis. The reality of this synthesis does not lie in the content or substance of its terms, but in the activity, the actual passing to and fro, from thesis to antithesis, from antithesis to thesis, holding the factors together and keeping them apart. The philosophical principle conforms exactly with the modern scientific concept of the basis of physical reality. The fundamental concept of science is the field of force. It is more fundamental than the concepts of matter and energy, for it is the condition of them. A field of force is essentially the concept of opposites kept apart and held together in stable equilibrium. Suppress the activity in this opposition, and the factors are not residual, they are nullified and disappear. In the older concept, matter was primarily adverse occupancy of space. This seemed to depend on two essential attributes, mass and impenetrability. Both have lost their absolute meaning in modern theory. Given a moving particle, however small, and a range of circumscribed movements, however large, and relatively to some possible system, there is mass and impenetrability. Have we not, in this, an ultimate factor which will provide us with a material basis of our universe? It is not so. In physical science, the particle is introduced ad hoc. It is clear that whatever holds true of the mass and impenetrability, which the particle by its motion generates, is equally true of the mass and impenetrability the particle itself possesses. So, not the particle, but the electric charge is the unit of physical science. And what is the electric charge but a synthesis of opposites, a polarization of attractive and repellent forces? In physics, then, as in metaphysics, the ultimate concept of reality is activity. Suppress the activity, and there is no residuum. There is not. The concrete universal is the view of the nature of reality, or what is the same thing, the concept of the reality of nature, which follows from the discovery of the dialectic. That is to say, the dialectic reveals to us the constitution of the world, 
by giving us the principle from which we are able to deduce the character of thinghood. The dialectic, the process or act of thinking, is itself dialectical, for thinking posits and does not presuppose thought. Thought is the negation of thinking. Thought is the fact opposed to thinking, which is act. Universality and concreteness are the characters which we attribute to reality, whatever be our theory of the nature of the material universe. The objects we recognize are universal objects. They exist for every intelligent observer. They are for each absolutely what they are for any one. Were they not, did we mean no more by the thing thought than the actual sense-awareness of the particular thinker, there would be no recognition of objects. Whether we hold a view of unsophisticated common sense, that the real world is unaffected in its existence by any activity we may put forth in knowing it, or whether we hold the view which in some form has been that of philosophers in all the ages, that unity of existence of knower and known is posited in the very affirmation of knowledge. In either case, the objects recognized in knowledge are universal objects, identical for all knowers. The objects we recognize are also concrete. They have a stubborn nature of their own, which asserts itself against us, and refuses to yield to any creative or annihilative power our mind may claim to possess. Objects are not like the spirits which we call from the vastly deep and dismiss as soon as our business with them is over. The notion is still widely held, notwithstanding a century of commentators on Hegel, that the Hegelian philosophy means the affirmation of a power in thinking to produce the real, or at least that the reality of any object, is simply a deduction from the thinking it. There is no more unpardonable misunderstanding than this absurdity. To some extent Hegel is himself, no doubt, to blame for it, for he always treated the misunderstanding with a certain contempt, and disdained explanation on the common-sense level. He gave the impression of reveling in paradox. It is a clear necessity of conscious existence as we experience it, that in whatever way our world has been generated, and whatever be the nature of the opposition of world and mind, this opposition exists. Objects are alien, independent of and indifferent to the mind which knows them. This independence of the object is a problem of philosophy which is not solved either by assuming it in the manner of common sense, or by denying it in the manner of Christian science. In the case of a vast number of the objects, their ultimate dependence on a spiritual principle is indisputable. There are objects, that is to say, recognized as possessing full objectivity, which in being known are posited as existing, and whose reality is identical with knowledge. Objects which concern social and political relations are of this kind. No one would deny, for example, objectivity in the full meaning of the word to such things as a lecture, a ball, a public meeting, a boat race, the derby, a cricket match. These denote each a class of objects, but each object of the class is particular and individual and independent of the knower. In regard to all such objects, we should, if challenged, admit that we suppose a material basis of their reality, however much we may neglect the materiality in discourse. But as objects, they owe nothing whatever of their real character, nothing of their essential objectivity, to this basis, and we should be hard put to it to define the relation of the material to the object. In a general way, indeed, we assume that were there no material substance, there would be no world. But in the case of these objects, it is clear that their substance is wholly mental. They could have no existence in a world without mind. 
now in regard to such objects the hegelian dialectic is easy to demonstrate and hegel's works are simply crammed with such demonstrations let us take a very obvious example a game a game of golf or cricket or a game of chess or even a game of patience is a reality as crisply objectified as any simple physiochemical object what then is a game in its primary intention a game is a diversion a relaxation and a game is therefore in the first instance the purely negative need of relaxation in some sustained effort but relaxation cannot be satisfied with pure idleness thought therefore gives shape and form to an opposite task the essence of the opposition is the diversion from and relaxation of the tension of some serious business but in the very passage into this negative position we make a new affirmation and we find in the very process itself a new positive task shaping itself and asserting itself as equally serious as the process develops the new task changes from diversion into serious business till in the end the game is no longer play and ceases to be diverting we see this process on the large scale in the curious development of games in the public school and university curriculum and in the perfect antithesis of the original intention in the rise of the professional player the scheme of this objectification is manifest it is only in its opposition to some serious intellectual task and it is only so far as the seriousness to which it was opposed passes over into it and becomes identical with it that it acquires the shape and form which objectivity demands and finally it is only in so far as the opposition is maintained in constant equilibrium of attraction and repulsion that the essential concreteness of objectivity is secured here however we come to a crucial point let us suppose it admitted that thinking is objectified into thought by this dialectical process yet it will be said thinking is throughout passive toward the material of the object and only active in shaping the material suppose our game to be golf we may admit that there would be no golf were there no mind and no thinking but equally there could be no golf without balls clubs and a certain configuration of the golf ground given any kind of stuff and the mind has the wherewithal upon which to set to work but the one thing mind cannot do is produce or deduce out of its own activity the matter on which that activity is exercised it is on this obvious fact that naturalism bases its argument and it is this fact rather than any argument that commends naturalism to common sense and scientific understanding the dialectic shows us that this antithesis between matter and form is unreal in this was the great advance which hegel made on the proposition of kant for it was the perception of the inseparability of form and matter which led to the rejection of formal logic and the discovery of real logic the logic of philosophy let us return to the example of the game of golf the matter of the game is given the form is imposed but the given matter is not formlessness it is not matter in its own right but only in virtue of the form already imposed on it as material of the object the game of golf it is taken ad hoc but even so its materiality is not absolute pure and in its own right that this is so is evident when we start to analyze this matter we can never succeed in divesting it of form so as to be left with pure stuff formless and decomposable no further to analyze it is simply to follow its history backwards or forwards at every stage what there is is not something separable into matter and form but always a distinction between what spinoza in one of his splendid intuitions described as natura naturans and natura naturata 
In considering the objectivity of nature, this is the clue which philosophy offers us. It may not be easy, in the case of any object whatever, at once to show convincingly the thesis and antithesis, and the dialectic movement and its reconciling synthesis, in which the concreteness of the object lies, but at least the vulgar notion that this concreteness consists in a materiality which is self-subsistent and independent of form is exposed in all its absurdity. Let me now try by comparing the materialist and idealist concepts of the world to show the impelling force of the philosophical principle in its striving for intellectual satisfaction. When I set aside every emotional aspect of the problem, religious or mystical, and confine myself to the purely intellectual aspect, viewing nature as a scientific inquirer views it, the idealist principle seems to me to succeed where the materialist principle fails. The whole of human life, and the whole phenomenon of life out of which the human mode of existence is evolved, depends on conditions which we conceive as, in themselves, totally indifferent to the life which they condition. The immediate aspect of these conditions is that of states of masses of matter in motion, an aspect which, on analysis, tends to become the extensive occupation of a space or void by a discrete material undergoing mechanical change consequent upon successive alterations of position in time. Let us raise no difficulties in regard to the concepts of space, time, matter, and movement, but accept them at least as descriptive of the reality which is not living, but the condition of their being life. Life is then an almost insignificant phenomenon. So disproportionate is it to the immensity and infinity of the non-living conditions of it. It is not attributable to chance, because chance has no place in scientific thought. But the necessity which underlies the emergence of life is purely mechanical. And though from the human standpoint life is the all-absorbing center of interest, everything seems to point to its almost negligible significance from the standpoint of the worldview. Life depends on the last resort on the instability of the compounds of a certain particular chemical element, carbon, and this activity is dependent on physical conditions which can only have arisen at what is particularly a momentary stage in the history of the evolution of a planet an infinitesimal stage when considered in relation to the whole history of the planet on this planet life is possible only on one particular plane of its spherical mass and the duration of the conditions which have determined this possibility however age-long it appears to our human interest is infinitesimal in relation to the vast duration which must have preceded and must succeed it when we look beyond our earth and consider in the boundless universe the infinite possibilities of other spheres then again what impresses us is the vast expanse and the myriad masses of matter within it in none of which is it possible that anything at all resembling life as we experience it can exist in our solar system there are only two planets besides our own which suggest to us the remote possibility that something in some way resembling the conditions of life may exist in them or that the history of this planet may have analogies in the history of planets in other systems materialism recognizes without attempting to conceal the problem of the nature of life and consciousness and it does not minimize the difficulties of conceiving an origin of life from non-living matter we have no experience of any chemical combinations out of which vital phenomena are induced or arise spontaneously we are forced to the conclusion that at least so far as any known form of living organism is concerned life and consciousness has had a single origin at one definite historical period there is so to speak blood relationship between every species or genus of living thing animal vegetable microbial 
there is absolute continuity of generation between every living individual and the primal individual form in which life appeared this makes the problem of life a very difficult one in science but allowing for this difficulty the materialist view resting on the fact that life and consciousness depend on non-vital physical conditions and insisting on the prior independent existence of those conditions is that life has arisen out of those conditions though the mode and nature of its origin may be undiscoverable and that the conditions are destined to continue their history though life and consciousness cease to exist modern idealism is not an attempt to disparage the strength or cogency of the concept of nature as an independent and alien reality for this aspect of nature is as essential to idealism as it is to materialism though not uncritically accepted by it as fact it is a popular and general misconception of idealism that it reduces nature to mind and deduces existence from thought it is the persistent misconception of idealism which makes the difficulty of presenting it as a rational theory i will try therefore not merely to state the doctrine but to illustrate it with scientific examples science teaches us that our world is moving in relation to the heavenly bodies with a prodigious velocity when compared with any movements of translation which we can be conscious of in our experience science also teaches us that the elements which condition our existence the air we breathe the earth we walk upon are exercising upon us a continual pressure or weight of which we are unconscious but which is enormous as compared with the weights we measure in scales not only are we absolutely unconscious of this movement and weight but it is part of our nature and a condition of our existence that we should be unable to be conscious of it we have only to imagine an individual organized like ourselves but consciously experiencing these movements and weights as actual sensations to see that such a one would be totally unfitted even for a single instant to exert or maintain the human form of activity it is clearly then an a priori condition of human life and consciousness that the individual should suppose the earth at rest the ground beneath him firm the sky above him open and free in precisely the same way idealism shows that it is an indispensable an absolute condition of living and conscious activity that things thought of should present themselves as independent of prior in existence to and alien in reality from thinking it is a condition of thinking that object thought should present itself and confront the mind as pre-existing cause not merely that it should appear to the mind as such that it should exist for the mind as such this is the meaning of the dialectic and to fail to see it is to miss the true discovery which it claims to have made the ego in affirming itself posits the non-ego not a sham or dummy appearance not a shadow of itself the non-ego is the negation of the ego but there is no falsity in the negation if there be no non-ego no non-ego in its own right then also there is no ego in the logic of thought the logic which shows us the real and not merely formal movement of thought the moment of nature is when nature is affirmed with its own positive content suppose it is possible that nature could appear as immediately identical with the consciousness of it or with thinking about it in the manner which the solipsist argument declares to be reality then so far from affording an illustration of the hegelian dialectic it would destroy it there would be no dialectic for it would be lost in a single self-identity nature is the immediate negation of the ego and the ego cannot posit or affirm itself without in the same act positing and affirming the negation the negation is not pure not it is posited and therefore opposition the movement of thought is the passing over into this opposition and the discovery that in this difference there is identity 
the concrete reality of life and mind is then seen to consist not in the passing to and fro from affirmation to negation from negation to affirmation from thesis to antithesis from antithesis to thesis but in the synthesis of a pure act which holds together at the same time that it holds apart the distinct factors of reality this as i apprehend it and accept it is the philosophical doctrine of the concrete universal the theory of idealism is not then that a subject supposed already existing by thinking produces thought as a spider spins a web out of its own tissues and then proceeds to endow its thoughts with objective reality the theory is that reality is activity and that activity manifests itself in a primary and necessary antithesis the antithesis thinking thought subject object act deed the conditions of our finite individuality and the nature of our activity require that our outlook on reality shall be in the moment when the antithesis is complete when mind and activity are absolute in their opposition the activity of thought the necessity of a continual attention to life the need to act unceasingly from moment to moment binds the mind to the observation of nature directs it outward prevents it looking back or within on its own activity nature appears therefore as a hostile opposing force confronting life and mind and indifferent to them the philosophical theory of idealism is a discovery and a constructive theory based on discovery the discovery is that in nature mind finds itself the constructive theory is that the original synthesis is mind in its undifferentiated unity as activity and that the process of this activity opposes a new negation to every position it attains the principle of idealism is therefore that the complete world-view never does and never can appear immediately and simply reveal its reality to the discerning mind of the finite individual just because his finitude means that he is actively participating in the world process he seeks to understand idealism declares that it is possible to construct the world-view by attending to and interpreting the activity itself to sum up the concrete universal is the formulation in logical terms of the philosophical doctrine of the nature of the reality of the world it describes the factors and the relation which constitute for knowing the objectivity of nature and for being the possibility of knowledge it is not an arbitrary or ingenious hazarded hypothesis it follows from the perception of the mode of the activity of mind the mind in the first moment of its conscious activity finds an independent alien reality confronting it a reality which it possesses the power of contemplating and finally of understanding in knowing nature mind finds itself and the logical process is seen to be the discerning of identity in difference this is held to imply an original synthesis logically prior to experience and the condition of its possibility the concrete universal is the concept of the mode of working of that synthesis concreteness is the character of thinghood the concrete universal means that reality in the full meaning of the word is of the nature of the concept in the concept opposite antithetical factors are held together in and by the continuous synthetic act of thought the factors in themselves are purely abstract only their synthesis in the concept is concrete universality means that the whole is present in every part the universality of a finite individual human being for example is not the number of his abstract external resemblances to other individuals by means of which the group man is classified it is the humanity or complete human nature which exists in every man there is no core round which qualities cluster or to which properties are adherent 
there are two alternatives to the theory of the concept as concrete universal one is materialism the affirmation of infinite and absolute space time and stuff as the primordial conditions of all diversity and variability including mind this primordial reality may be conceived as in itself inert matter or as essentially active energy or force the other is solipsism the denial to the individual mind of the possibility of transcending its own state of consciousness both are blind alleys it is only in the concept of the monad that the concrete universal is both realized and individualized end of chapter 12 recording by olivia